1 Kings 20, beginning in verse 1. It reads, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him in horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called the elders of the land and said, Mark now, and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people of Israel, who, or for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. Let's pray. O oh Lord, how we need you. Lord, as we just sang, when things are going well or when things are going poorly, we desperately need you. And as we look at your word, would you guide us and direct us for our paths today and throughout this week? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Henry Fleming, no relation, I think, to those here, eagerly enlisted in the Union Army and could not wait for the first battle when he would go lick those southern rebels. Oh, or so Stephen Crane tells us in his famous book, The Red Badge of Courage. Campfire conversations with his fellow soldiers included statements of bravado, enthusiasm, and confidence of what they were going to do once those Rebs would stop running and actually come to fight. Those boasts continued until the first battle. Henry no longer charged to meet the foe, but he ran in fear and then cowered in shame. The horrors he saw left him shocked, shaken, and shuddering. Yet almost the worst of it all was his disappointment in his own fearful flight. All bravado, enthusiasm, and confidence had been replaced with the realities of war. It won't be till another battle till Henry faces his fears, attacks the enemy, and in the fight gets wounded, now having the red badge signifying his courage. Well, the red badge of courage describes the stark experiences of war. But when you think of the Christian life, is the imagery of war, of battle, of conflict, one that you consider? For some, the language of soldiers and war only brings up negative connotations of crusades, of inquisitions, the imposition of Christianity on others. Yet while some people have abused the Bible 
and the language in it. We should not shy from using the language that it uses. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.3, Share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. Earlier, Elaine read Ephesians 6, and in there it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then it goes on, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but there is a fight in which we must be a part. We must be soldiers engaged in the conflict. And so the Bible uses this language of warfare to describe the conflict we have with sin and the devil. Yet unlike Ephesians 6, the Old Testament, the struggle was against flesh and blood, and this morning we come into one of these battles. In it, we're going to see four things. First, And last, we see bad responses by Israel. We see them trying to negotiate with the enemy in the first 12 verses. But then they realize in verses 13 through 21 that God secures the victory. Following this, they're reminded in verses 22 to 30 that God controls everywhere. But then lastly, they make a bad turn and they try to befriend the enemy. But let's begin where we read the first 12 verses where they're negotiating with the enemy. If you remember the context, we just read of Elisha's call to the prophetic ministry. And when he was called, he gave it all up. He burned his oxen and the yoke and went and followed. Yet now the story turns to tell of the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, coming in and besieging the capital of Israel, Samaria. And there he sends a request. Ahab, we'll leave if you just give us your wives, children, and all that you have. And Ahab replies, Like you said, my lord, the king, I am yours and all that I have. Now on some level, that's just the formalities of their day, the language they would use when referring to another king. But isn't that the issue? The shocking reply of Ahab that he calls another king my lord, he shouldn't say that to anyone but God himself. Only God should be his Lord. Ahab has seen God's provision. Ahab has seen God act in a mighty way, and yet even now he doesn't turn to God. And I think the author puts this story right after Elisha to put this stark contrast. Elisha gives everything to the true Lord, and Ahab is willing to give it all to a foreign Lord because he will not bow his knee to the true Lord. And yet then Ben-Hadad increases his demand. He says, well, I don't just want what you think is best. I'm going to send my servants in and they're going to take basically whatever they want. And Ahab will not go this far. And so he and the elders counsel him. You may notice the absence of any calling out to God. That they won't fulfill the second demand. But then Ben-Hadad boasts, we are going to come and make you just like dust. And Ahab, now perhaps tired of cowering in fear, basically says, look, Don't boast that you've won the battle. You haven't strapped your armor on yet. Like Henry Fleming, anyone can boast before the first bullet whizzes past. But only those who fought bravely and won can boast once the battle is over. And yet in this very beginning, we see Ahab trying to negotiate with the enemy. And yet it'll never work. Since Karl Marx's little pamphlet communist manifesto some people have seen the world through the lens of oppressor and oppressed and like so many ideas these ideas have resonance because there is a degree of truth to them 
tragically, in a fallen world, there are people who are oppressors. And there are people who are oppressed. They use their position of power and authority to only push themselves up. And as they lift themselves up, they push others down. And Ben-Hadad represents the worst of oppressors. He doesn't care one bit about Israel. The only thing they're good for is, lift me up. And you're going to give me some? Well, I'm just going to take more. And if you give me that, I'll take even more. There's always more, more, more. And Ahab thinks, well, I can just give this and he'll leave me alone. I'll do this and that'll be enough. And Ben-Hadad is showing us that oppressors will never find enough. Ahab needs to realize, we need to realize, they'll never be appeased. And even in our lives, if you make anything your master, if you make anything your goal in life, or what you're living for besides the true and living God, it will always want more, more, more. It'll be satisfying for the moment, but then it'll say, you need more. You need more money. You need more authority. You need more experiences, more illicit encounters, more, more, more. It promises life, but it will only take, it will never give. In contrast, as we saw last week with Elisha, God demands submission, not to crush us in the dirt, but for our good and His glory. You know, undercutting Marx's idea that all people are there to just oppress is a crucified Savior who came not to push down, but to let Himself be put on the cross so that He might then give us life and life abundantly. And so we too are then called to use all our positions of authority to serve, to lift others up. And we see that God wants to lift others up, not use others just for Himself, by the fact in verses 13 through 21 that God secures the victory. So let's read those verses. 1 Kings 20, verses 13 through 21. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booze. He and the thirty-two kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they've come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, and servants, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. We've read the first portion and now the second. But as you read the first 12 verses, the one person we heard nothing about was God. And what, yet what appears to be a hopeless situation, God appears through his prophet. And he tells Ahab that he will help. You know, God in his grace and covenant loyalty to Israel will help Ahab. And what does he do? He tells Ahab, look, look out. Look at that massive army. You see all that? And he says, what you see is not most important. 
In other words, Ahab needs to consider the unseen realities of life. Now, if you spend your life only focusing on what your five senses can perceive, then you'll miss out on the most important aspects of life. Yet, if you'll focus on what you can't see, then you can find hope, even as you see decay, deterioration, and disintegration all around us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, if we could have a camera that recorded all that we gazed upon, we would find that we're often looking horizontally. And metaphorically, we're not often looking up and looking at the unseen truths of God in this world. And Ahab is doing just that. He just sees what's before him. All he sees is a massive army. And yet he doesn't see the God who just showed up on Mount Carmel. The God who showed that he rules and reigns over all. And so God is going to do this so that, notice what it says in verse 13, so that you will know that I am the Lord. Now you may know that was said before in the Bible, actually said multiple times, but it wasn't said to an Israelite. It was told to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. When Moses and Aaron came in and said, the Lord says, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? I don't know them. I'm not going to let you go. And so the Lord acted in miraculous ways, as it says in Exodus 7, 5. So the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against them and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You know, ten other times God says, I do this so you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know that I am the Lord. And then this all culminates with God's triumph over Israel, over Egypt, at the Red Sea, where God foretells, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So of all people on the earth, the Israelites should know that Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. And yet here, Ahab, the Israelite king, has to be shown that I am the Lord. But then Ahab asked, well, who's going to do this? Who's going to win this battle for us? And he says, the servants of the governors. Now, the word for servants is most often used for young men, for lads, even boys. In other words, this victory is not going to come from seasoned warriors leading out in battle. This is going to be the seventh grade boys. Some who are still here and some who've shot up here and they still don't know how their body works as they're in this transition. They're going to lead this mighty charge against this army. They will win the victory. Well, why would you send the seventh grade boys against seasoned warriors? Because God wants to make it clear that he achieves the victory. You know, this is God's strategy throughout scripture. In Judges 7, God has Gideon deplete his army from 22,000 to 300 so that they will know that he won the victory. Or in Exodus 14, God defeats the Egyptian army 
by the Red Sea. And God does this so that our boasting will not be in us, but in Him. So even here, Ben-Hadad, he's boasting, we're going to defeat you, but only the Lord and His will will bring victory. So Israel's meager army, or more likely Boy Scout troop, goes out at noon while Ben-Hadad is there drinking himself drunk. And Ben-Hadad, when he sees this, probably drunkenly says, well, just go capture them alive, like that's going to work in some battle. Just capture them all. He thinks Israel won't even be able to put up a fight, and yet Israel routs them. The Syrian army is destroyed, and they go in flight. And you may notice, only at this point, verse 21, do we hear of the king of Israel going out. Though he was told to lead the charge, he that waits until he knows there is victory. And yet remember where we are in the story. Ahab has already seen God in the great contest on Mount Carmel. That contest began with Elijah stating in 1 Kings 18, How long, Israel, will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And then after God consumed the altar, the people fell on their faces, it says, and they cried out, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And yet just a short time later, Ahab thinks, I have to negotiate with the enemy. God is not enough. Ahab is not living in light of God. He knows of God, but he doesn't know God. And tragically, there's millions of people in our country, millions of people in Texas, who know of God. They can tell you Bible stories. They'll tell you, I pray. They may even go to church every once in a while, but they don't actually know God. They just know about Him. Do you know Him? And yet, it's not just others. Our lives, we are prone to forget God and His loving care for us. Even Israel, after God delivered them, after they saw over and over, know that I am the Lord, what do they do? They go in the wilderness and they complain about not having meat or vegetables or enough water. You know, when the Bible talks about us knowing God, it's not just knowing facts. It's trusting Him. It's relying on Him. It's confidently acting based on His character. And I don't know about you, but as I read the Bible, it's easy to go, man, they are dumb. They don't get it. They're fools. Come on, Ahab. It was just two chapters ago that you saw this. Come on, Israel. I mean, really? And yet then I see the mirror that God's word is. And I go, boy, I'm dumb. Boy, I am a fool. How can I see God's love on the cross and then doubt his care? How can I be so easily irritated or grouchy when things don't go as I think they should? Why would I think life and joy is doing the things God says I shouldn't do? You know, each day, each second, we need to live in light of God's faithful love and care. As we see His faithfulness in the past, experience it in the present, and know His promises for the future. Do you know and trust God? Are you counting on Him to secure the victory? 
Dale Davis tells of John Crumbie. He was a merchant in Scotland in the late 1700s, and below his store, he kept gunpowder. And one day, he sent a servant to go down and supply, get some more supplies. But as he went down, he stumbled, and the match lit the gunpowder. Tragically, the young man was killed, but Crumbie was shot into the air, carried up the street about 30 yards, and dumped among the debris without a scratch. An experience hard to forget. Davis writes, and he didn't. Every year for the rest of his life, Crumbie scrupulously observed its anniversary, shutting himself within his bedchamber the whole day long, pouring out his thanksgivings for his preservation. He was impressed. Grace left his mark. So did Crumbie ever have days that he didn't live in knowledge of God's grace? I'm sure he did. And yet he reminded himself over and over of, God, of what God had done so that he could live faithfully for God. And that's what we need to do. That's why we gather every week to remind ourselves afresh of God's faithfulness in the past, his faithfulness today and his promises for the future. And part of that is knowing that God controls everywhere. And we see that in the third section, the next few verses, verses 22 through 30. 1 Kings 20, 22 through 30. It reads, And the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. And we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went out against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord." And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 who were left. Ben Hadad also fled and entered in an inner chamber in the city. So the prophet returns and tells Ahab, Look, Syria was defeated, but they are reassembling. They're going to reattack. So you need to get ready in the spring, in the fighting season. And Ahab goes and prepares. But we then get a glimpse of the conversations going on in Syria. For there the king's servants declare, well, yes, yes, it was the Lord who beat us, but he's just God of the hills. And you know, what we need to do is recruit, refill re-enlist and fight them in the valleys, the plains. That's where we're going to win. You know, there's really nothing new under the sun. Each generation, each person is able to somehow find an excuse. So it's not our fault. I mean, I know we're your counselors, but we didn't cause you to lose. It's that you fought in the wrong place. Nothing's ever our fault. 
There's always some reason why that happened. And so the Syrians say, yes, yes, it's God, but let's just not fight in the hills. And even today, we constantly try to excuse away God's involvement in the world. We mentioned earlier God's victory over Egypt at the Red Sea. And skeptics seek to explain it away with low tides, a strong wind, anything but God. Kevin DeYoung tells the story of a young girl in Sunday school who, upon hearing upon God leading Israel through the Red Sea and then causing Egypt to be destroyed, she said, praise the Lord. What an amazing God. He could send the Israelites through the Red Sea on dry ground. And the teacher said, well, wait, you don't understand. It really wasn't the Red Sea. It was just some other little body of water that had a low tide and the wind blew through it and the whole Israelite nation passed through in about six inches of water. To which the little girl responded, that's amazing. Praise the Lord. He drowned the whole Egyptian army in six inches of water. You know, denial is not just a river in Egypt. And you can seek to explain away all the multitude of evidence for God's existence or you can submit yourself to God. You can give a different interpretations of the facts, or you can do what the Israelites did. After the Red Sea, they praised the Lord. So Ben-Hadad listens to this bad counsel, and he comes with this new army, so massive that Israel's little army looks like two little small herds of goats. And yet, again, they're going to lose, because as the man of God says, they are not trusting the Lord. They are belittling the Lord and God will give them into their hands so that Israel will know that I am the Lord. So a week later, the battle ensues and Israel destroys a hundred thousand. Not only that, but 27,000 that flee into the city are then crushed when the wall falls upon them. And we see here, and we'll see later, allusions to Jericho that on the seventh day, the wall falls and crushes them. This section really raises the question, where is God's power limited? Now, if I was having a conversation with you right now, I know almost everyone in here would go, nowhere. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, we're in church. Of course, God, omnipotent. We know this. He's omniscient. He knows everything. God's not impotent in any place. But yet, let's change the question. Where have you said, nothing's going to change? With whom have you become hopeless? In what situation have you given up and said, it's just always going to be like this? There you are saying, God can't work here. Yeah, he can work in church sometimes. He can work over there. But fit. you wouldn't say it, but it's not going to change. This is hopeless. And yet God is showing us he can and will work anywhere and everywhere. So don't despair. Trust the power of God. There's no sin in your life that can't be defeated. There's no child or spouse or friend or relative beyond hope. God still changes cultures and the cantankerous. He still changes societies and sinners. We may not be in the Syrian Pentagon explaining away victories, but we explain away God's power when we don't have hope that he will still work. And yet while there's been this great success, the story sadly ends in a tragedy because Ahab will befriend the enemy. We see this in verses 31 to 43. We'll read the rest. Beginning in verse 
31. And Ben-Hadad's servant said to him, Behold now, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he'll spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waist and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad said, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go out and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to the fellow, at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him, and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you've let go, let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. So Ben-Hadad escapes. He's in the city, but his men say, Look, the Israelites are merciful, so let's put on the clothes of mourning, sackcloth, and the clothes of servant, ropes on our heads by which we carry things, and let's go to him. And when they put on these clothes, Ahab accepts, calls Ben-Hadad his brother, and makes promises of treaties with him. And so in just under a year, the tables have completely reversed. For now, rather than Ben-Hadad demanding from Ahab, he promises to give him cities and allow merchants in the capital of Syria. So it seems the story's over. And yet we read more. Because a prophet is now on the scene. And a prophet goes and tells another prophet to strike him. And he refuses. He refuses God's word to him. And he says, since you refuse God's word and wouldn't strike me, a lion will strike you. And then it happened. One author says, we may complain about how weird and strange this episode is. That would be both true and beside the point. Instead, we should confess the story is both clear and frightening. It is not safe to ignore the word of the Lord. That's the point. So yes, it is a little weird. I'll admit that. But what is the point of the story? That obeying God is important. But don't we often act like it's not? Those who talk of obeying God's word, we go, ah, oh, legalist, Pharisees, and yet there should be joy in obeying. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Not if you're a cold-hearted religionist, you'll obey commands. But if you love me, you'll want to obey my commandments. Yet how glib and light-hearted we are about sin. We care more about our children expressing themselves than submitting themselves to God. We laugh at jokes that delight in sin, and we are quick to rationalize the sin in our own life and those to whom we're loyal. And yet, over and over, like right here, we see that God takes sin seriously, deadly seriously. And this story is also showing us that no one, not even a prophet of the Lord, is exempt from obeying God. And we are familiar with people turning a blind eye to the rules when it's their friend or their family member or their political party or their person they love. And yet God plays no favorites. He doesn't bend the rules because, oh, well, that's my prophet. Yeah, we're going to let that one slide this time. And this is a warning to Ahab. If God will kill a prophet, he won't escape himself. And so another prophet follows suit. And this is all done so they could present a disguise to Ahab and then go and tell the story of we were supposed to be guarding this man, a prisoner of war. And I was told if he escapes, I'm going to have to give my life for a talent of silver. Now, a talent of silver was an amount that a regular soldier couldn't pay. It'd almost be like, you will lose your life or you have to pay $100 million. We'd all go, okay, you're dead. I mean, if you don't keep this soldier alive, there is no hope. And when Ahab hears that the soldier got away, he says, you have condemned yourself. And yet by that word of judgment, Ahab is condemning himself. He was to protect Israel. He was given a prisoner, Ben-Hadad. He was not to let him go, and yet he let him go free. And so the prophet removes his disguise and tells of the consequences that Ahab and his people will be taken. Ahab's lack of knowing God has consequences. He didn't know God. He didn't know God's word in the past. If he did, he would know he was sinning just like Achan and Jericho or King Saul, who were both punished for not destroying what God said must be destroyed. But is this right, though? I wonder if in your mind you're going, but aren't we supposed to be merciful? I mean, wasn't that a good thing for Ahab not to punish him? Well, yes, we should be merciful, but we misunderstand the roles and spheres in which you're to do that. Let's imagine you go up to the mall and you're walking along and all of a sudden you feel someone bump you and then you go, they just took my wallet. And you start yelling and the security officer runs and chases them down and gets them. And then you go up and you say thank you and the officer says, hey, I just want to let you know I'm an officer of mercy, so I'm going to let him go. You'd be like, well, no, that's not your job. Your job is to enforce the rules. If I want to show mercy to that person, I can do that. But that's not your job. You know, mercy is something in interrelational situations. When, we have, when we're given by God certain roles, our job is to be faithful to those roles. And if it is to administer justice, then we sin if we don't administer justice if we're the cause of mercy. King Ahab was in such a role. That was his role as king. But not only that, consider what had already gone on. 
Ben-Hadad had not once, but twice sought to humiliate Israel. He demanded everything from Israel. And then he came again. If someone broke into my house twice and wanted to harm my family, and then after they arrested say, well, can't we be friends? I would say, what are you talking about? No, twice you've broken into my house and tried to harm us. We can't be friends. Yes, on some level we could maybe have forgiveness over time, but forgiveness does not mean we're naive and just say, well, they said they're sorry, so I guess we're, everything's fine as it was before. As well, God gave Israel clear commands to destroy the nations around them. And when we were in 1 Kings 9, we dove into this quite a bit. And we wrestled with, does God approve genocide? And we said a lot then, and I'd be glad to discuss it more afterwards. But just to briefly summarize, since we went into a lot of detail then, God does not approve of genocide, so to speak. Rather, God says the wages of sin is death. And while we deserve that death immediately, God often forbears. He doesn't give it to us immediately. And yet, at times, God has caused that judgment to come. And Israel was an agent of judgment. So, God commanded Israel to have holy war. The war was not genocide or racial purging, but rather it was God's judgment upon sin. That's why in the same verses that will say, Israel, you need to go do this, it also says, and if you sin, that same judgment will come upon you. It was not just for the other nations, it was for any nation or person who did not turn from their sin and trust God. We see that very issue arising here, for Ahab does not obey God, and because he doesn't obey, there's punishment. And this is the other similarity with Jericho. In the defeat of Jericho, Achan didn't devote everything to destruction, and upon finding him out, Joshua called him the troubler. Of Israel. If you go back to 1 Kings 18, when Ahab first, sorry, when Elijah first comes back to Ahab, he calls Ahab the troubler of Israel. Here we're seeing that trouble. That Ahab, by leading the nation in sin, is leading the nation to destruction. We're being shown again, you cannot befriend sin. You must be vigilant against it. In Matthew 5, Jesus gave these strong words in dealing with sin. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, yes, we know Jesus was speaking in hyperbole. Because he also tells us sin comes from the heart. If he was literal, we would have no hands, eyes, feet, or any other body part. Yet he is being serious in his hyperbole that sin is deadly serious. So if you have any activity or possession or ongoing experience that leads you to sin, you must remove it. No matter how convenient or fun, you must cut it out of your life. Every day... We must be putting sin to death and putting Christ on the throne of our life. Yet the problem is, we think that we can be sin managers. We can control it. We can just kind of dabble with it. 
you know, it's our little pet that we use when we want it to serve us. Yet scripture warns, sin can never be managed. It must be mangled. It must be fought to the death. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In 2019, Kirk Kayser was moving grain on his Nebraska farm when his leg became trapped in a grain auger. No one around, no cell phone in reach, so he took out his knife and removed his leg. It was his life or his leg. And he said, I'd rather have my life than a leg. And Jesus says, would you rather have your life for eternity or have everything fun and good now? Be willing to cut it off. God warns us time and again, the wages of sin is death. Are you in the battle? Are you fighting the holy war that Christ calls you to? Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we be soldiers of the cross. May we be followers of the Lamb. May we fight. Oh Lord, I know it's so easy just to manage, try to manage sin, and yet it's a lie. May we see the lie and by your grace and by the power of your spirit put it to death. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.